Well, good morning, Doxa. Guys, it's, it's great to see you guys today. Go ahead and grab your Bible, if you haven't, and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If, you, if you're new and, and kind of visiting and checking out Doxa and you don't have a Bible, man, we would love to give you one as kind of just a gift. And so on your way out, you can stop at the welcome table and we'd, we'd love to give you a Bible. This is just kind of what we do. We, we open up the Bible together as a family and, and seek to hear from God and then ask him to give us the courage and the strength and the discipline to, to respond to him. And so we're in the, the gospel of Luke. We're, we're journeying through this entire book that's taken us better part of a year. We're in Luke 18. And as you get there, uh, I'm going to start with, with this. And it's the same place that I've started in the last several weeks. Okay. And it's this, this guys, Jesus is on the road. All right, that, that he's walking. So since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, which is the big turning point in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus sets his eyes towards Jerusalem. From then until the middle of the 19th chapter, Jesus is on the road and he's walking towards Jerusalem where he's ultimately walking towards his death. His, he's going to die for our, our sin and he's going to die and rise as our savior. And this is where we're, where we're at. And so as he's on this road, as he's on the road walking to Jerusalem, he continues to, to meet and to interact with a number of different types of people. And what Luke is teaching us, guys, is, is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying this, is guys, and I, and I want you to consider this. I'd even encourage you to write this down because this is really what is driving everything is here's what it takes to be on the road with Jesus. This is the question, is what does it take to be on the road with Jesus? This is really what we're, what we're asking. And so for those of us who, who claim to be Christians, guys, as we, as we listen to Jesus and we're, we're learning from Jesus, basically what we're saying is, is here is what our lives should be marked by. Here is what our lives should look like as we walk with Jesus on the same road that he walked. And so the goal of, of all this, guys, here is what should be happening in every single one of our lives. It's one word. It's the word introspection. All right, that, that these interactions that we see Jesus having with these people, they're, they're not just to be informative, but really they're to be transformative. That everything we read in the Bible is an opportunity, guys, for us to stop understanding that they're not just words from men, but they're words from God given to us. That they should cause us to just stop. And it elicits self-examination on our part. As we're learning from Jesus, and then we say, okay, well, what does this have to do with me? And guys, one of the things that I pray and I've been praying all week for this. I've been praying for a while. And I hope this will be true of our church family as we continue to grow and continue to go. Is that, guys, that our church would be a family that is easily edified. Meaning that, that we can learn from anybody. All right, that we wouldn't be, be a prideful group of people, but we would, we would have a, a humble posture knowing that we can literally learn from, from anybody. And, if, and, and so, guys, really what we need to know is that every single person that our lives intersect with, they have something to teach us. And we can learn from anybody. And, and I'll qualify that by saying we can learn from, from anybody if, if we're humble, all right? If we have the discipline to figure out what the lesson is for us to learn. And so I'll ask you this as we start, and I'd encourage you to write this down and even talk about it in your connection group this week, is are you, are you easily edified? Do you, do you come to a place like this and we, we gather here, you gather in connection groups and are you able to learn from people? Maybe even people that you would say, well, they're not spiritually mature as me and, and they don't have as many years. On, like, are you able to learn from anybody? Or are you kind of prideful? Do you think that you have it all together? You, you know everything and so you, you, you really, you don't, you're not teachable. Which one are you? Because guys, the truth is, is we can learn from anybody. And what Luke is doing throughout his gospel is he's teaching us, hear this, he's teaching us the way of Jesus 
by letting us eavesdrop in on Jesus having conversations and interactions with a bunch of different types of people while he's walking on the road. And what we're going to see today is Jesus having a conversation with a rich young ruler where if we are humble and if we're willing to, to actually learn, we're going to learn from, from this man's negative example. All right, that we can learn from people's positive examples or negative examples, but here we're going to learn from this man as we look at his sin, as we look at his confusion, as we look at his greed, his idolatry, and ultimately his sadness. And it's going to be a chance for us for, for introspection. All right? And not just that, but also for repentance as we continue to walk with Jesus. Okay, so let's get into this. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 18. I'm just going to read it through, and then we'll get to work with, with dissecting this and figuring out what this means for us. Luke 18, 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who left his house or his wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, before we dig into this, okay, I need you to look back to one verse. All right, look back to verse 17, the verse that precedes this, this passage, because Jesus says an ast astounding statement. All right, right before this section, which is going to frame up where we're at today, he says this in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. All right, and what Jesus is doing is he's saying that he's given us the truth that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you have to come like a child. All right, so if you think about a child, you're thinking about someone who is just completely helpless, right? That they need somebody to do everything for them. This is what Jesus is saying. If you want to come to the kingdom of God, if you want to come to me as your God and Savior, you need to come like a child. Now, as we get into this section today, guys, we, we get the exact opposite example, all right? That he says we got to come like a child, but now we get this example of this rich ruler. But the question still remains the same, is how do we get into the kingdom of heaven? How do we get into the kingdom of God? And this is a major question. This is a major theme that, that Luke is, is pointing us to. And he links these stories together about largely what does it take to get into the kingdom of God? This is the question that, that is proposed here. All right, and as we begin to consider our passage, okay, in this rich ruler, we, we see a number of different things that, that put him on the opposite spec, side of the spectrum than this little child. All right, and, and, and it's, it's important for us to know, guys, that, that this account is, is seen all the way through the, the synoptic gospels, which are literally just the technical wording for the, the three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
All right, and so not every story that we, we see, not intera- every interaction that we're given with Jesus is seen in all three. This is one of those ones that we see in all of them. And so when you look to places, you look to Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, and then here in, in Luke 18, we see this account. And as we see it, we can put these parallel passages together and get a really full picture of what is actually going down here. But as we look at this guy, all right, we see a number of different characteristics. All right, number one, you see that he was prosperous. All right, Matthew calls this man a, a, a man of, of great wealth in Matthew chapter 19. In addition to this, we, we see that he was principled, all right, that, that really this, this guy says that he, he followed the commandments. He, he lived according to the rules. He was a man of outward integrity. Even more, we also see that he was personable, all right, that if we read this account in, in Mark chapter 10, we, we see that Jesus, in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And I know that says something about Jesus and his character, but I think it also says something about this man, that he was, he was winsome, which is probably why he, he, was, he was successful in life and he had the position that he had because he was a winsome guy, even to Jesus here. But he was also spiritual. He wouldn't probably have described himself as this, but he was certainly religious, all right? He was a, he was a man who was interested in eternal life. He's asking these, these spiritual questions. And so you have this man who's, who's prosperous, he's principled, he's personable, and he's spiritual. And so from the outside looking in, if you just saw this guy from the outside, his external appearance, like this is the type of guy that would walk into to Doxa and we'd be like, oh my gosh, like, he would be a phenomenal connection group leader. We got to get this guy, get him to Doxo 101, like Ronnie said, help him be a member. And he, we got to get him to get leading, right? I mean, the, the disciples are probably looking at this guy and saying, we got to recruit this guy because he would be great for our group. And that is precisely why this is so interesting and surprising that as we read this passage and this man talks to Jesus, he gets sad and he walks away. Luke doesn't mention him walking away, but if you read this account in Mark's gospel, he literally walks away. But this guy, guys, he's, he, and I need you to understand this, he's a man of ability, right? That's, he's a ruler, which is likely, he's likely a, a civil magistrate, okay? He's, he's worked his way up. He's got power, he's got money, he's hardworking, he's zealous, he's, he's marked by activity and achievement. And in light of all this, it's really no surprise, right, that when he comes to Jesus, with this spiritual question, he wants to know what he has to do. All right, some of you guys that are your, your drivers, right? If you, you geek out on like the Finders stuff and like Myers-Briggs and all this stuff, some of you guys are like achievers. Achievers always wanna know. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter, okay, right? But achievers always wanna know what they have to do. And here in verse 18, look back. This guy arrives to Jesus almost like he's taking on a new project. He's like, okay, I'm kind of getting bored with all this other stuff. I'm successful. I got money. Now here's this new thing, eternal life. And he says in verse 18, good teacher. And I want you to circle this next part. What must I do? Circle that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He comes to Jesus and he asks this really, really good question, but he asks it in a really, really bad way. All right. Cause the question that he basically asks is he's like, what do I have to do to save myself? What do I have to do? And guys, this is, I would say, the position of many people in our world today, and I would bet the position of maybe some of you in this room, that you're asking, what do I need to do 
to inherit eternal life? What, what type of religious work, what amount of money do I have to give? Okay, how do I have to serve? Like what type of classes, like you mentioned Doxa 101, like what do I have to do that in addition, I can add that to my resume of my achievements and my successes that I can now say, I've worked and done enough that now I can have eternal life. This guy is like so many people today that thinks he can save himself. And he asks this question, and I can, I can see it. He's really successful. He's an achiever. And he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And it's almost like he's so confident that whatever Jesus is about to say, that he can do it because he's just used to doing it. He can use his money and he can use his power to do whatever he wants to do. And Jesus replies to him, and I think he just stops this guy in his tracks. Because this guy was probably expecting Jesus to be like, hey, you know what? thanks for coming to me. And you know what? You're so polite. Thanks for calling me good. It makes me feel good. Warm and fuzzies. I got it. You know, now here's what you need to do. There's just three things. If you just do these three things, you're going to be good. You'll have eternal life. That's what this guy was probably expecting. Now, Jesus, instead of that, look at verse 19. He asked him in light of what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus is, is saying, while that question about eternal life is, is an excellent question, it's exceedingly important, here's where we need to start. Why do you call me good? And that might not seem significant, but you need to know that the title good teacher was never used as a, as a customary greeting in these days. All right, theologians and historians will, will tell you that there's not a single example in the Talmud, which is just an ancient um, Hebrew writing of the civil law, and, and they would say that there's never an example of anybody calling a rabbi good. Because when you would do this, the, to use good in this way was to ascribe to a man an attribute that was possessed by God alone. And what you need to know is this, guys, is that God alone is good. And we see this motif running all the way through the Old Testament. We could go up, we could stand up here and go through it. We're not gonna do it. But while we might talk about people, like you describe people to your friends and say, man, they're, they're a really good man. They're a really good woman. You need to know that no one is actually good. God has, has two categories, sinner and sinless. It's not like God is in heaven looking down and he, it's like an old Western movie. It's not like he sees good guys and bad guys, right? No, he looks down and he sees bad guys and the Lord Jesus, that's it. And he's saying that the only one in the truly sinless, the truly good category is God, it's, it's Jesus. And so Jesus is in effect stopping this guy and he's rebuking him and he's saying, don't say that I'm good unless you think that I'm God. And he's trying to help this guy understand this because this guy, he, he recognizes that Jesus is a good man, but he doesn't see him as the God man. And there is a big difference. Guys, some of you, you would put Jesus in the same category. You would lump Jesus into the cat category and liken him to Mother Teresa or, or Gandhi and say, you know, he's done a lot of good things. He's said a lot of good things. He's helped people. He gives us a really great example to follow. He's not our savior, but he gives us a really, really good example. In fact, just the other day, I was, I was talking to a guy and becoming friends with him. I Not a Christian. He wouldn't call himself an atheist, but definitely not a Christian. And, and we were talking and super smart guy. He's one of those guys, you know, when you sit down with somebody that you know is smarter than you and you're like, crap, I hope he doesn't ask me the wrong question, right? 
I get that frequently, okay, and this was this guy. But we're talking about like politics and religion and philosophy and so yeah, just the t- typical light conversation, right? And he's asking me all these questions and we start talking about politics and, and he, the most interesting thing, he looked at me and he said, Rob, I'm just like convinced that Christ, and this is his, his words, that Christ is the answer to where we're at in our country right now. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's, that's interesting that you, you say that. And he, and he went on to literally say, man, if people would just follow Jesus, like everything would be so much better. And I was like, yeah, like why don't you do that, right? <laughs> and, and, but we, we had this conversation and he's like, I have answers for that. And I, and I shared with him like the C.S. Lewis argument that, that really when it comes to Jesus, there's only three options for him. He's either liar, lunatic, or the Lord. And I'm like, it's so interesting to me that, that you think Jesus is the answer by his example but you know that Jesus didn't just say to love other people and to give generously, but he also said that he was God and that he was going to be the savior of the world, that he was going to die for your sin and raise for your life. You understand that he said that. So if he said that stuff and it's not true, like you should not be saying that he's the answer. And so we talked about this, but here's the point. He sees Jesus as good, but not God. And that's this guy right here. And so what Jesus is doing is he's using his greeting to correct his theology. And he says, why do you call me good? Because only God is good. And as he asked this, guys, it, it must have made this rich guy just stop and start to think and reflect on who it was that he was actually talking to. Because Jesus is saying, okay, think it out, that if, if I'm good, that means that I'm God. And so you need to think of where you stand with me as I'm talking to you about this. I'm God. Where do you stand? And in doing this, guys, he's stopping this man, and he basically starts to shift the conversation. He's like, you know what? Here's what we need to do. Let's, let's dive into this idea of goodness and the nature of goodness. And what he does is he makes this man start to think about how good he is and the question about eternal life, all right? And so Jesus says, I'm in fact God. I'm good. How about you? Are you good enough for eternal life? Now, look at verse 20. Jesus says, you know the commandments, You're asking me this question, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, mother, mother. And then he says in verse 21, the guy responds, he's like, okay, yeah, all that stuff, I've kept those things since I was a boy. So Jesus says, okay, you want eternal life? Here's what you need to do. Just live out the commandments and live them out perfectly and you're going to live, you're going to be okay. But this rich man, he says, okay, I've done all of that stuff. Now, the interesting thing for me is that this guy has a really arrogant, like inadequate view of himself, that he thinks he's like a really good moral guy. He's living by the rules. He's keeping all the commandments. But the interesting part is that there's still something in him that realizes there's got to be something more to eternal life. He's got these questions, this unsettling thought that there's got to be something more than me just thinking that I'm good. And I think he starts to question, like, am I really good enough? Is this, do I have all the answers? And so much so that he goes out of his way to find Jesus and ask him, like, okay, well, what do I need to do? And, and I say all that to say, maybe that's you. Because maybe you're, you're here and, and you think yourself of, of a pretty good person. Right, you, you look around and you're like, man, I, I'm not like the fools around me. I'm not like the guys at work. I'm, I'm pretty good. Like I treat my wife right and I've, I've done stuff, and, but I haven't done anything that bad. I'm, I'm actually pretty good. But there's something in you that keeps asking that question of like, is this, is this it? Like, am I good? 
and you question your salvation and your eternity. And it brings you back to Doxa all the time and it brings you around God's people and you're asking this question inside you and I want you to know, guys, that you're right. You are missing something. You're missing a savior. Jesus is not just a good man. He's the God man. And you're, and you're missing this. You're missing the savior. You cannot save yourself. And Jesus, he's showing him this by giving him the second half of the Ten Commandments. And if you know how the Ten Commandments work, you know that the first half are really about honoring and loving God. And the second half deal with how we live and love towards people. And Jesus is, is referencing the, the second half of these commandments, dealing with loving people. And this rich man says, all of these I've done. I've, I've lived towards people and I've loved them super well. And I don't think, guys, that this rich man was, was being insincere. I think he understood the external reality of the law. And really thought that he had done it. All right, he's like the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3, 6, where Paul says before Jesus, he's like, in terms of the law, in terms of external righteousness and legalistic righteousness, I've lived it out. I'm blameless. I've, I've kept the law. But like Paul and many of the Pharisees, he, he failed to see the spiritual reality, the depth of the commandments. And we see, if you know Paul's story, guys, I want you to write down Romans 7, 7 to write down or look at in, in connection group. Before Paul meets Jesus, in Romans 7, we, we see that, that Paul thought he was doing okay. But as he considered the 10th commandment not to covet, it rocked his world. All right, because Paul says in Romans 7, 7, when he heard the commandment not to covet, he started realizing that he coveted everything that everything about his life was looking around and he just coveted everything that was around him and in his heart. And he realized that by coveting all the things that are around him, that he was in fact breaking the law. And in breaking this one part of the law, he was breaking all of the law. And he wasn't in fact good and able to follow the law. He needed a savior. And this rich ruler, he'd never thought about this because superficially he was right. He, he didn't, he, he was faithful. He didn't murder anybody, right? He was honoring his his mother and his father, superficially, he was keeping the commandments. But he didn't understand that what Jesus teaches is that even if you, you lust in your heart, you're breaking the commandment of not committing adultery. If you hate in your heart, you're breaking the commandment not to murder. He didn't understand the depth of the law. And as he's seeing this, guys, the point of the commandments, you need to know this, is to show us that we are not good enough. The only person who has ever lived them out is Jesus, our Savior. The rest of us, we are incapable of doing this. And Jesus is trying to help this man understand this. And he says this, look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, that he thinks that he's good enough and he kept all the law, Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell everything and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He says, okay, you wanna go to heaven Here's what you need to do. Just sell everything, give it to the poor people around you, and then come and follow me. It's this, it's this three-part command. And the issue is, is following Jesus, right? Luke is showing us what it takes to walk on the road with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, okay, you need to empty yourself. In Jesus, we see that he actually did. He emptied himself to the point of death, right? Philippians chapter two is a beautiful picture of this. But why did Jesus ask this guy to do this? I mean, it seems radical, right? We don't teach this. We don't say, you know what? You need to respond to Jesus, so go home, put everything on Facebook Marketplace, and then come back, and you can become a Christian. Right? We, we don't say that. So you guys are super serious. Like, we don't say that, okay? <laughs> but so why? 
Why does he do this? The answer, guys, is this, is this man had possessions. He had tons of money that, hear this, that he loved all of that stuff more than he loved God. And Jesus knew this. And despite how, how pious this guy looked externally and how it looked like he kept the external reality of the law, of the commandments, Jesus knew that if he told this guy to do this, that it would highlight the fact that he didn't love God in this way. That he wasn't able to even keep the first commandment, which is to love God above everything else and have no other gods before him because this man, his money was his God. And so he broke the first commandment, which means he broke them all. And so he's realizing his greed. That's a word that I want you to write down. That's a big word in our world today. In this passage, it's greed. He wasn't willing to give his money away to help the poor. And in so, it revealed that he didn't really love God and he actually didn't love his neighbor as himself and that he had actually broken all the commandments. And he's realizing, I'm not good. I can't have eternal life. I can't do what Jesus is asking me to do. Because guys, money was the thing in his life that was most important. It's not God. It was not people. As we look at this rich ruler, you can almost see him like he's looking into the eyes of Jesus. He's hearing Jesus' words. And the question is, is what is he going to do? Because eternal life is right there in front of him. He's about ready to grasp it. He can. But Luke graphically records what happens. Look at verse 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He becomes sad. You get the picture of like his face just fell. Sadness overtakes him. And Mark tells us that not only was he sad, but he literally walks away. He turns his back on Jesus and walks away because he had great wealth. And he had come to the terrible, sad realization that he wasn't willing to part with his money for the sake of eternal life. And he's realizing, I can't keep the law. I can't keep the commandments. I'm not able to work myself. I can't achieve eternal life on my own. And so he walks away sad. And guys, if, if you are a Christian and you know the gospel, like part of you just wants, like if you were in this story, you'd be like, you'd run after this guy and turn him around and be like, you don't understand. Like, let me, let me tell you this a different way, right? Because it's so sad. He walks away from eternal life. And what I want to say to you is this, guys. I can't think of like a more graphic way to describe the danger of wealth here. Jesus is about to say something crazy, right? We've, we've probably heard this. But before we get into that, okay, there's a few words of qualification that I just want to give, all right? And number one is this, when it comes to wealth and money, Jesus is not making the case for asceticism, all right? Asceticism is, is really just, if it's physical, it's bad. If it's spiritual, it's good. And so asceticism basically says, like, take everything that's physical in your life, your money, your possessions, everything that you have, and get rid of it because it's all bad. Only the spiritual is good, all right? And, and that, you've, maybe you've heard that. That comes from, like, platonic dualism from Greek philosophy, but that's not a teaching in the Bible, all right? Because Jesus's little brother, James, he actually says every good gift, God is a good gift giver. It comes from God. And so Jesus isn't calling for asceticism. And the Bible lifts up tons of, of people in the Old Testament that were rich and godly. We have Abraham and Boaz and Job, all right? There's, there's a lot of different people. And so it's not just about that, but, but that being said, guys, while we get these pictures of, of rich, godly people, we also continue to get warnings throughout the Bible about wealth and what money can do to people. 
and how greed can just pervert and distort the heart and cause us to neglect and abuse the poor around us because greed is that type of thing that will just grip us. So Jesus isn't calling for asceticism. He's also not calling us to, to take like an oath of poverty, right? It, for you to take, become poor and just sell everything, like that doesn't mean that you're more spiritual because it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, the pursuit of riches can be equally as damaging regardless of how much money you have. But what we're seeing here, guys, is an issue of, of worship and idolatry. And idolatry, okay, is, is really just, it's a good thing that becomes a God thing. It's a, it's a gift that God gives that becomes a substitute for God. It's anything in our lives that we elevate above God in our heart. And I'll say this, guys, you don't have to have a ton of money and to be rich to have money as an idol. You can be poor, right? I know that there's some college students here, right? You certainly aren't rich. You can be poor college student and be obsessed with money and just compelled by money and you're trying to make money and you're trying to do everything now so that you can have a bunch of money in your future. You can, you can be poor and, and not be generous and not give and you can covet everybody's money around you and have money as an idol because you don't have to be rich to have money as an idol. And it's my belief, guys, the reason that we spend any amount of time on this, it's my belief that money is an idol for most Americans including us. I really think that, that money is like a, a, an underlying problem for us. It's, it's about money. So many of our lives, it's all about money. We obsess over it. And I think that's why Jesus' teachings and his words are, are timeless and they're really timely for us because Jesus talks about money in the Bible more than any other topic except for the kingdom of God. The 25% of Jesus' teachings really revolve around the idea of wealth and possessions and money. And he keeps talking about it because I think he knows, like in our fallenness, in our depravity, guys, we obsess about the wrong thing. We obsess about the thing that gives us comfort. That, that, that's what idols do. They lie to us. Right? And some of us, we, we hold on to our money. We love our money because it gives us comfort and security, but it really doesn't because you always need more. Jesus is the only one that does that. And so he's talking to us about this. And this rich ruler, he walks away sad. Guys, and the disciples, they're, they're seeing this. And here's what Jesus does. He turns this into a teachable moment. All right, you guys have kids? Some of you have kids, right? Your kids, one of them does something totally stupid, right? And you're like, okay, I could just yell at him and just move on. Or I could just be like, you know what? Let's use this as a teachable moment. Lily, come over here. Titus just destroyed daddy's computer. Let's talk about that, okay? I don't know, he actually didn't do that. But, right, you turn it into a teachable moment. And this is what Jesus does. Verse 24, look at this. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad because what? Jesus had just put his finger on the idol in this man's life. He, he found the thing that he loved more than God. He was worshiping his money. This guy becomes sad, and Jesus says to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Now, Guys, I'll be transparent with you. Last week, we, we talked about like the reality of heaven and hell. This week, we're talking about money. I cannot wait till next week when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. We get to the Palm Sunday account, and it's just like, hey, Jesus is here. This is awesome, right? And like salvation, like, I'm not super pumped to talk about this, right? I know that 
after last week and this week, some of you guys are going to be like, I'm not going back to that church. But you know what? We teach through the books of the Bible. And the things that are important to God, that were important enough for the Holy Spirit to inspire, to give to us, I'm going to give to you because I'm not going to stand before God someday and say, you didn't give the people the thing that I gave you. And so we need to talk about this. And guys, I'll say, I say that to say this. We would really, it would really be a, a huge disservice to all of us to not take Jesus' words seriously and literally here. He makes this statement about a camel going through the eye of a needle, right? The largest animal in Palestine. He uses it to illustrate the impossibility of something. And this something is, he says, it's impossible for someone who trusts in riches. It's impossible for someone who loves money and who is greedy to come into the kingdom of God. And you know, need to know this, guys. When it comes to, to wealth and money, for us in this country, we look around the, to the the world and we see rich and wealthy people and we think they're at a huge advantage. And the rest of us that maybe don't have as many riches, we think of it as a disadvantage. You need to know that in Jesus's eyes and through the Bible's eyes, wealth is a spiritual handicap. And the greater your wealth, the greater your handicap. That it's really hard for rich people to love God because rich people don't oftentimes feel the deep spiritual hunger in the need to seek after God because they have everything that they could want. They fill their lives. They have access in, in power, in, in the ability to fill their life with everything that they could want. So they, they, the temptation is, well, I don't really need God because I am my own God. And if someone continues to allow greed to have hold of their heart and to dictate their, their desires, their, their action, and it drives their life, I want you to hear this. They're not truly able to follow Jesus. And you need to know that. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, 13, he says, no, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. This is what Jesus is, is teaching here. The parable last week that we looked at with the rich man and Lazarus says much the same thing. And so what I'm saying is that there's a man named Kent Hughes, and he says that there is a proper Christian fear of wealth that we should all have. And we should fear it because number one, guys, money can really destroy our soul. That it's easy to have our soul just completely twisted and distorted and perverted by wealth. That money can, it can change your priorities, it can change your focus, it can change your values, it can change your character, it can change your identity, which changes your destiny and your direction in your life. The Apostle Paul, I think he knew this well, maybe from experience, but definitely as he led people. In fact, he's discipling Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's discipling this young pastor as he's beginning to lead churches that are filled with wealthy people. And he tells them this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, command them not to be haughty, don't, not to be arrogant or prideful or greedy. Because wealth will, will make us those things. And Paul says, Timothy, grab those rich people, tell them, command them to be generous and to give because their soul is at stake. This is what he's saying. And I don't know if you've seen this played out in your life. I, I, was, I was going through this and studying this passage. I've, I've actually seen this with, with some of the friends that I've had throughout the years. I played football with this guy in college. And I remember him coming in as a, as a freshman. And he was like, just like passionately following Jesus. I mean, just a tremendous man of God. 
I wasn't, but I remember looking at him. I'm like, oh my gosh, like he really believes this to be true. Always sharing the gospel with me. Always sharing the gospel, like trying to live an exemplary life for Jesus. And I, I lost track of him, but I remember going back to Bowling Green a few years ago for a homecoming game where all the guys come back and, and he's made it big in the entertainment industry. He lives down south and I remember him coming back and we met each other and talking to him, no mention about Jesus. The only thing that he could talk about was how much money he had, the house that he was looking to buy, the car that he just bought, what he was gonna do next, where he was traveling to. And I'm not making a judgment on the, the state of this man's soul, but I'm just saying, completely different man. What has changed? He's now extremely, extremely wealthy and he has everything he ever needed. And in many ways, he's turned his back on God. Now, I wanna specifically apply this to us so we don't think that this only applies to the really, really rich among us, okay? Because guys, here's what you need to know. Every single one of us are wealthy. A very small percentage of people in Doxa Church right now are not. I'm wealthy, you're wealthy. That's just us. I don't worry about having money for food and clothes, right? I have everything that I want and I actually have more. And so do you. Every, almost everyone in Doxa Church, this applies, guys, when we talk about this idea, it applies to 99.9% .9 of us. And so I'm speaking to myself as I speak to you, but my concern is this, is guys, you guys, some of you, you young professionals, or you young marrieds, you're, you're both having jobs, you're, you're making upwards of six figures a year. And maybe even more, it's just gonna keep going. And I want you to know that what we do with our wealth will determine the ongoing state of our soul and our families. And we need to be very, very careful with how we handle the money that God gives us. Because what you need to know that, that the world won't teach you that with prosperity comes great danger for us spiritually. And so since we are all wealthy, guys, we're all subject to this and we're kind of in harm's way. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to us. Number one, Jesus is saying, you're not God. You need a savior. You cannot work your way to eternal life. You can't come to the kingdom. So you need to hear me say this. It's all about Jesus. It's not about anything that you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. You need to come to Jesus. This is the point. But what he is also saying is that money is a big deal and it will distort your soul. So what do we do with this? And I want you to write down two words that we're gonna talk about this week in connection groups. Divest and invest. Those are the two words. This is what we do. And to divest ourselves literally means to, to rid yourself of something. And so we all need to divest ourselves of our dependency on our wealth. We need to regularly, consistently, formally, prayerfully do this and divest ourselves of our dependency on how much money we have and, and how much comfortability we have in our life because of that money. And you need to do this as you walk with Jesus every single day, divest yourself of your dependence on your wealth. But in addition to this, guys, we need to invest our wealth. And I'm not talking about the stock markets or anything like that, or your 401k or your Roth IRA. I don't even know what all that stuff means, okay? I have like a CPA uncle for that. But that's not what I'm talking about, okay? What I'm talking about is that guys, as, as your income rises, you need to give to God's work in this world. You need to give for the people and to the people that, that God loves that don't have the means to help themselves. 
And hear this, you need to give in a way that it affects your lifestyle. That's the big thing. That guys, if you have a million dollars and you give a hundred of it away, it's not gonna affect your lifestyle at all. It's really not. And what you're doing, if, if this is your posture of, of giving, is, is really what Jesus would say is like, I think you're showing something of your heart. Like greed and idolatry is, is probably bubbling up a little bit. Like there's something that this is saying, that you need to give in a way. Guys, that there's things that you want to do that you simply don't do. There's things that you want to buy and enjoy that you don't buy. There's places that you want to go on vacation and visit and see to take pictures and videos that you don't go to see because you give so much and so generously. This is what we're saying. That guys, if your giving doesn't grow as your wealth does, then I would suggest, and I think that Jesus would warn us, that your wealth has you by the neck. And that greed is a really real thing. And idolatry is a really real thing that you need to think about of how that's twisting and distorting your soul. Because Jesus, guys, don't you love that Jesus is a giver? Right? Jesus, he doesn't come in this world and says, hey, give me this. Like a lot of other religious teachers in our world, like they come in, they get on the TV, they get on the radio and they say, hey, you need to give me this, give me this, give me this. Jesus comes in the world and says, hey, just give me one thing. Give me your sin and I'm gonna give you everything. Jesus is such a generous giver and because of him and what he can do in our life, we can be radically generous too. Now, I'll say this, guys. We know how, the, like maybe you've been to a church and you're like, okay, this is going. He's gonna start talking about tithing now. No, I represent the church, all right? And, and I know and I believe that the church needs to be filled with generous people to give, to, to fund the mission that God has for church planning and for the benevolent good of our city. But that's not what I'm talking about, all right? What I'm saying to you is that guys, we need to be a generous people because it shows the posture of our heart as one who has received the greatest gift from Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this is what it takes to be on the road with me, is to live like me, to walk like me, to give like me. But you need to give, and you need to be generous, and you need to give as God directs you. And you need to give in a way that it affects your life for your soul's sake. It's divestment and investment. That's what God tells us to do, and people aren't willing to do this because we're greedy. My wife is super godly, and over the last 10 years of our marriage, she's discipled me in this. And she's constantly calling me, like every week, hey, can we give to this? I got this in the mail. I just saw this person. Do you, can, I'm like, well, we're not going to be able to go out on a date. <laughs> I mean, that's just a terrible way to think about it, right? But we don't do this. But here's how I want to close. The disciples are amazed at this interaction. Because in this day, there was like a Jewish prosperity theology that they thought that rich people, because of their material possessions, were blessed by God, and they were for sure going to heaven. So they couldn't imagine a rich person not going to heaven. And they said, well, who can be saved? And this is what Jesus says. What is impossible with man, verse 27, is possible with God. Jesus is saying that salvation is impossible for the rich and the poor alike because we are all far from God because of sin and idolatry and greed in all of our hearts. But Jesus says, I do the impossible. He says, I get camels through the eyes of needles. I get people like you that are broken and sinful and greedy and idolatrous and messed up. I get you into the kingdom of God. That he died for our sin. 
He rose as our savior. And the one thing that this rich man could not obtain eternal life and the forgiveness of sin, Jesus gives him as a generous gift. And he invites us to get rid of our idols, to lay it all down on the ground before him. And he says, let me give you everything. And his grace, he saves us. And he saves us from our sin and he saves us from our idolatry and he saves us from our greed. And he enables us to live above materialism and idolatry so that we can give and we can help people in our city that need it and give to the poor. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, we can give how? We can give as a cheerful giver because of what the gospel says to us, that Jesus cheerfully gave us his, himself, his life, his death, and now we can do the same because we're on the road with him and we're living for and like him. And so we can now cheerfully give. Because the big idea is this, is that, the affection of your heart drives the direction of your life. What is the thing that you love? Is it your money? Is it relationships? What is, whatever it is. And whatever that thing is, you need to lay it down. Whatever that thing is that's in between you and Jesus, you need to identify that and lay it down. For most of us, I would say, honestly, guys, it's probably about the money. You want to chase the idols in your life? Follow your money. And that'll probably give you a good insight on what it is. But Jesus says it's not about that because I am your ultimate treasure. And when you understand this, it changes everything. And maybe you hear this stuff about money and you're saying, I can't do that. I can't give generously like that. Jesus would say, well, maybe that's an idol. Maybe that's something that you should go to work with and confess and repent of and ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to give in that way. Jesus says, I do the impossible. I will give you a new heart that will love me and love people. What that means, guys, every single one of us needs Jesus. We're broken, we're messed up, and we need him. So let's pray, and I'm just gonna give you some time to get with him thank him, ask him for help, whatever it is that you need to do. Let's pray. God, thanks for the Bible. Thanks for your, your words to us. I hear them loud and clear this morning. And honestly, it's, it can be a tough thing to come face to face with the things in my life that I put before you. It can be hard to, to see my greed in light of how generous you are. God, would you empower us by your grace through your spirit to be a church that just is radically generous like you, that we would love you above everything, that you would be our treasure and not just in our words, but literally in our hearts in such a way that we would become different that the gospel would spread within us like a virus just that just takes us over, that just allows us to, to hold everything, every good gift that you've given us in our hands, in open hands and saying, I lay it down at your feet and I'm willing to do, I surrender literally everything to you. Now tell me what it is that you want me to do. Would we be that type of people that enjoy your gifts, but are just radically generous? to those in need around us. 
just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.